Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Almost April, Dave. Yes, we're almost there. This is kind of a turning point, right? For anyone in education, the the end is in sight. So that's a it's a good season. And uh, Easter is always, you know, wonderful. Just a wonderful thing to think about. And uh, so all good. And then March Madness comes to an end, and and uh, we did not do well uh, on our. Did so you did much better than I did, but. Uh, well, much is relative there for sure. Yeah, I, I was one out of four on my final four. You were over for four, though your champion did lose in the first round. So that was a bit of a tough start. Um, but of course, that was a great story of the tournament, uh, St. Peter's, uh, right right here near us in, in Jersey City. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, start of April hopefully means warmer weather. We've had 20s the last couple of days. Uh, it's supposed to be 70 tomorrow, so we'll see if that happens, but it's it's been the re- return of winter and and the whipping winds, which you know in New York City, as you know, when you come up out of the subway, <laughs> and all of a sudden those winds are whipping up those long avenues. It's it's a little brutal. So I thought that was January. Now it's it's late March. Well, I remember in New York City that April was always just a great month uh, because yeah. you know having lived in New England for so long, that two hundred miles south made a difference. You actually had a spring in New York in April, so. Hopefully you'll get a string of 70 degree days here and, and to be able to enjoy the flowers blooming and all the rest. It's, it's a pretty amazing city, you know, when, when spring approaches. Yeah. I mean, I'd take 55, <laughs> you know, and, and a light pleasant wind rather than a gale force, a frigid wind. So anyway, we'll see what we get. Uh, it's been up and down for the last several weeks. So maybe we're moving in the right direction ultimately. Well, Mark Twain's famous quote, Everyone always complains about the weather, yet no one ever does anything about it. So I know. Well, come on. <laughs> All right. Well, let's turn to Aristotle. We're moving our way through book six, and we are now on chapters four and five today, Dave. So in book six, chapters four and five, Aristotle goes through the four kinds of democracy, ranking them from best to worst and, and giving us some uh, characterization as to what would make a better and worse regime. The best type of regime is a regime in which people within the demos are working, in which they have no leisure. Uh, The best, hence, type of industry to perform is agriculture, uh, a type of work that begins as the sun um, gets going in the morning and often ends as it's closing down. And I think that uh, this, this realization that having someone whose sight lines are on a job to be performed in front of them that is constant is really interesting because the the more leisure that you have, uh, the more time on your hands that you have, usually you don't use that time well. Now, how then is the regime governed if it's a regime of farmers who are always working, 
uh, from dawn until uh, dusk. Well, you hire, excuse me, you elect magistrates and you hope that those magistrates are going to do very little and get in the way of your life very little. And here, when I was reading through this in preparation for this week's show, I think back to the New Hampshire legislature that has 400 members in a state that had 1.2 million population. That's like one person for every 3,000 individuals. And if you were to go back to the beginning of the state's history, likewise, you have this big legislature and the legislature is made up of farmers who in the months of January and February are doing the work of a magistrate when it's cold and they can't do anything else, but then they make sure that they get that legislative work done by March so that they can tend to their farms. They can go back to all of these various areas within New Hampshire and tend to their business. Now, it's kind of interesting, right? If you look at the New Hampshire legislature in the year 2022, they're often going into the summer, June, July, and Aristotle would say, well, it's a bad thing. If they're legislating rather than farming, right, then the end result is usually going to be something uh, that's, that's less flourishing for the community. What do you make of all this? Yeah, a lot of thoughts on that, but the the farmers were definitely not the dominant group when you were in the late legislature, uh, late 90s. Lots of lawyers, uh, independently wealthy folks, uh, people that had their own small business or were married to somebody in that situation. And because, of course, they're not paid any substantial salary. That was the other feature of this. And so, you know, if you were a person who was of average means, you couldn't make your living, a modest living even at that by being in the legislature. So, you know, the citizen legislature model was interesting. And I think it, it fit the circumstances you're describing where you, you know, do your business the first few months of the year when it's cold. But if you're not going to do that, then it really does crowd out a lot of people and only a certain class of the community is able to actually make the financial sacrifice necessary to serve. It's a really, in some ways, aristocratic element if you were to use the categories of Aristotle there. But I, I like the, the point about uh, how we have too much time, you know, we don't always use it well. And I think of, you know, my own experience in high school, uh, I was on the golf team, uh, a mediocre contributor to our success. But in any case, you know, that, that first quarter of the year could not have been more busy because, you know, you play 18 holes after, after school, or maybe you missed the last class or two to play a full match. I mean, that's, that's your evening. And by the time you get home, you know, you've got to scramble to get your schoolwork done and be ready for the next day. But I would always do better that first quarter than I would the subsequent quarters because I just, I had to be on task. I just didn't have any margin. And I had to be disciplined. And, you know, the minute you have that extra time, it's so easy to find that extra show to watch or, or you know, whatever way to idle away that time. So I think there's, there's definitely a keen insight into human nature there that Aristotle's building on. And it really, I think, relates also to some of the founder's observations about the virtues of representation versus direct democracy. Right? You, you get a large number of people together, uh, they become an impassioned mob, uh, as, as wise as they may be, as orderly as they may be in their, in their personal habits individually, get them all together and, and trouble ensues. So it's not just the idle time, but also uh, the, the way that a, a crowd cultivates the passions and draws out the passions. And so even though there's, there's something maybe a little amusing or almost insulting right? About the, the best democracy being one where the people have the least time to, to rule. <laughs> There's something there that, that the founders saw as well, 
that that there's a right use of representation and and a right approach to uh, ordering a good life that actually accounts for some of our faults and flaws and and draws out of us the best possible regime given our fallen condition. Yes, and ordered well, it, it satisfies these two main groups that are within or humors that are within society. Those who are ambitious, who who would love to rule, they have the opportunity being representatives to to rule, and hence there's a nobility to their existence. But then they rule over others who they have to respect because they've drawn from the votes of those others who are hardworking, who have property, uh, who have um, done their best to, to live industrious lives. So the good and the notables are satisfied. And those who are living an agricultural existence who are governed by those nobles are also uh, satisfied. So, uh, and, and you see the reverse, right? When uh, people are crowding around the city and it's the mob and the demagogue that, that, that play the part in determining uh, a city's uh, life. And this is where he's going to as he goes through these uh, other forms, more corrupt forms of democracy. So one of the things that you, know, you find in Federalist 57, the layers on top of that, is, is the need for the people and their leaders to live by the same laws. And so that's, you know, the notables, because they're accountable to the people, of course, if they don't want to do that, they want to pass laws that give themselves special exemptions or privileges, the people can hold them accountable, but they must hold them accountable. Uh, because of course, that's the tendency of everyone in power is to carve out special privileges for oneself and think about the, the fundamental distinction between regimes that we get in Aristotle, between those that seek the common good and those that seek the good of, of the rulers. Uh, that's just the natural tendency. And so, you know, we use elections, but also, you know, that kind of responsible watchfulness that citizens must cultivate to make sure that those, those, those that are holding office are not abusing their office of trust. So the second best form of democracy, and I'm, I'm really upset that he didn't use the word brigand here, but he was a pastoral pe- people. For those, for those longtime listeners, you know that there are, have been brigands in the Corbin family in, in Normandy, but this is the, the pastoral people who, who live by their flocks uh, are the second best type of democracy because likewise, they are busy, but a second element here, they're moving. They're following their flocks, so they're not congregating and forming mobs. Uh, they, they hence are thus uh, that much less uh, of a danger uh, to the community. And another element of them being a pastoral people who live by their flocks and are horsemen, etc., is that they're very well trained for war. Uh, Aristotle says they're robust in body and they're able to camp out. So this type of democracy also provides a good kind of defensive element for the regime. Uh, They're not in anyone else's business, but if they have to do the business of protecting the community against other regimes, they're able to do so. So I I think the overall point that Aristotle is making here is is the importance of of an independent life that that allows you to provide for your means and then also contribute in, in healthy ways to the community. And whether that's um, by being a person who's a watchful citizen, whether that's being a person who's who's well trained to help protect your community and doesn't, of course, have to involve, you know, ever using weapons, but being somebody who's who's vigilant, right? Who who keeps an eye open for the neighbor, and 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 and, and communicates the message as we've talked about, you know, how how do cities begin to to lose their order when the message is communicated that we don't really care, and so to be citizens that do care 
and are engaged and, and are watchful over their neighbor and, and wanting to make sure that uh, order is maintained and people, especially the weak, are being protected. Yeah, and perhaps the most famous modern example of a political community like this is Switzerland, right? That has this requirement that everyday citizens are have the ability to take up arms uh, when necessary. I, I think there are right American equivalents in, in the past. You think I'm, I mean, here I am in Texas, where a lot of people are hunting, fishing. Uh, they know how to camp out, that type of thing, and you kind of see that within. The Mountain West in general, and and even in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio that have great hunting communities, you think about all of those individuals who have, would have gone out hunting, you know, as a young boy, and then been called to duty uh, in war, and that transition would have been much easier for that type of person having lived that type uh, of existence. So here, here you know, Aristotle's common sense point, I think, really kind of hits home uh, for us as as Americans. Well, the third form of democracy, a third ranked form of democracy, is a type of democracy in which there's no room for moral excellence in any of their employments, Aristotle writes. So these are mechanics, traders, or laborers. Here you begin to see a shift uh, in the type of demos. It's more of an urban demos uh, that is doing the work of exchange. Now, there's a lot of good that comes from that. I mean, you work in New York City and you see all of the hustling in New York City that's kind of led to some great national uh, prosperity. But what Aristotle writes is that the more people who are kind of working as traders or mechanics or laborers in the city, the more likely that they're going to be able to converge upon uh, the city and, and, and begin to uh, perhaps uh, form mobs or, or, or unions of, of individuals that fight for their self-interest rather than for the good of the community. What do you make of this as a New Yorker, Matt? <laughs> He's hitting upon you. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, there's a great quote that I sometimes use in my American political thought class where Thomas Jefferson compares um, you know, cities to basically sores, you know, festering sores on the body politic. And so, you know, I think building upon that Aristotelian kind of tradition and, you know, what, what kind of life is there in a city? And, and I think people have observed, many have observed that cities show you the, the best and the worst, right? I mean, the sort of the highest achievements that, that human beings are capable of collectively are displayed in the cities. I mean, it's extraordinary museums, you know, the, the opera, the, the orchestra, the, you know, the, the, the arts, um, of course, the, the best publishing houses and finance firms and, and all the rest, right? The, the very pinnacle of, of human achievement in these various fields is, is readily available and on display. And then you see the exact opposite of that. I mean, you know, you, you see the worst. And of course, certain neighborhoods um, in, in you know, every city are, are those places where you, know, you, you see the boarded up windows and you see the, um, you know, the homeless person or the drug addict. And so, yeah, that's it's, it's in some ways it's not as as democratic. Right. Because there's an inequality there that that's plainly on display. And so can you have that kind of equality <clears throat> necessary to maintain uh, a democratic regime where you seem to have such extremes, you know, and of course, a well-ordered city tends to, um, you know, work toward more of a moderate expression of, of that city life, but uh, it's not easy. And, you know, our own experience in New York City has been over the last 40 years, 
um, long before I was here, but, but, you know, you see the trajectory of a you know, real improvement during the Giuliani years and Bloomberg years, and then the beginnings of, of some measure of decline, although it's not, uh, you know, collapse, but, but still nevertheless, a measure of decline um, with de Blasio and now with a new mayor who's reacting to that and, and trying to improve things again. And so you kind of have these cycles of, of improvement and decline as, as you have more or less of that, that kind of Aristotelian uh, city life displaying itself. Yeah, and I think this kind of uh, transitions well into his description of the last or worst form of democracy. And this is a type of democracy in which there really is no common standard for citizens, that, that, that they ought to be lawful, that they ought to be industrious, uh, that, that they ought to care about the common good. In the fourth type of democracy, leaders, he writes, are in the habit of including as many as they can and making citizens not only of those who are legitimate, but even of the illegitimate. So there's no standard of what citizenship is. And if there's no standard of what citizenship is, it really is every person for themselves. And that's a situation ready-made for demagogue uh, to make that case that follow me and we'll do X or for a mob uh, to form and, and do the same thing uh, from the perspective of a multitude. I mean, it's obvious that the, you know, the, the metric that Aristotle is using here is, is the tendency of democracy toward that kind of mob action. And so the further you can remove yourself from that, as we've seen all along, the best democracy is the most moderate democracy, the one that merges other elements of oligarchy or other regimes to balance its worst impulses. And so we see this over and over again in, in discerning regime analysis, whether it's the Tocqueville or Aristotle or others, um, that when you have any regime there's a natural tendency toward a certain kind of injustice or disorder. And so the best form of that regime is one that accounts for that and, and identifies the causes of that and tries to create structures, institutions, and habits that push back against that tendency. And that brings us nicely to chapter five of, of book six. What then should the legislator do in order to have the firmest foundation and in order to secure the best type of, of democracy? And here, the legislator should be thinking defensively, uh, should be thinking in terms of what is longer lasting or what is a preservative. So how do you create the longest lasting, uh, best preserved democracy? And the answer is you can't think in simply democratical terms. You have to think not just what's best for democracy, but what's best for the flourishing of the entire society. So you have to kind of get out of this, this mindset of, of becoming a demagogue or becoming hyper-democratic in order to best secure democracy. So where does this show itself most? It shows itself um, in, in terms of wealth distribution. The great danger or challenge or temptation for someone who is hyper-democratic is to take from those who have and distribute to those who don't have. But the better way of moving forward is to, to recognize right, that all people need to have sustenance, all people need to have a livelihood, but teach people how to have that livelihood rather than giving them payments instead. Teach people how to work so that they're not too poor rather than taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, 
that's critically important because you know from the start, Aristotle has been giving this analysis that the the two most common regimes are the rule of the rich and the rule of the poor. And so again, if we're trying to to balance those and to avoid the worst extremes on either end, then we have to figure out a way to have the interests of the rich and the poor both be realized. And there's no point in saying, well, you know, that the poor are are more numerous and therefore we'll satisfy them, or the the rich are uh, louder and you know better connected, therefore we'll satisfy them. Um, that creates inherent instability. There's always going to be a, a group that's out that's that's being uh, that feels that they're out and and wants to be in. And so that kind of magnanimity and and, and foresight that's necessary to sympathize with those that aren't maybe at the center of the regime, but but would feel themselves on the outside. And to try to accommodate them and bring them in is, is, is critically important. And I think, you know, if we want to take like a really big picture question here, what, why in the world should we be talking about Aristotle and de Tocqueville, right? We spent the last two seasons working through page by page, um, and we've managed to create a more discerning audience in, in the course of doing that. And we were talking about <laughs> headline grabbing elections and Trump and Biden. Um, we were getting more downloads. Uh, so, so what's, you know, what's, what's going on here? Why, why would we bother with this? And I think, you know, Aristotle has given us the answer here that, that even if we don't have any expectation that uh, philosophers will be kings or that all kings will be philosophers, that it's critically important that we have some philosophic distance from the regime that we're in so that we're not just imbibing all of its prejudices, all of the habits that are, that are so common to it without thinking about the consequences that follow from that. So that we're able to see, yes, this is a democratic institution, a series of democratic institutions, but we also need to moderate those by, by appreciating features of other regimes that we might have otherwise rejected based upon our prejudices as, as good small d Democrats. And so there's, there's something about that, that imagination that comes with the study of Aristotle and de Tocqueville and other great political thinkers that, that shows you other possibilities that opens up to your own judgment and your own understanding, your own prejudice, you know, the, the, own, the, the things that you've assumed that you thought you weren't assuming that were just human that turn out to be particular to your context and to your regime. So, you know, I, I know this is a, a, a hard study for all of us, but I think it's absolutely necessary if we're going to be able to be citizens who are discerning enough to be a benefit to our community and, and be able to see that the, the flaws and the faults of the regime in which we live. To look further than the parties uh, and hence to improve the parties by, by exactly. providing a sight line that they just don't have when they care more about the immediate. And, and here he's talking about kind of a larger part, like the, not the, uh, capital D Democratic Party or Republican Party, he's talking about Democratic lowercase d impulses or um, oligarchic lowercase o impulses. And and really the, the, the common sense advice is you have to teach those of a Democratic persuasion to appreciate merit, to appreciate property, to appreciate work. And you have to teach those of an oligarchic persuasion to appreciate opportunity, to appreciate access, uh, to appreciate giving someone a chance to work. And when you look at our politics today, 
how many capital D Democratic politicians voice a support for private property, voice a support for merit, for dessert, for just dessert. And how many Republican capital R politicians are working to increase and advance opportunity? If, if those two are kind of the, the office holders of these kind of main types of uh, political persuasions, we're not really doing a good job. And we'd be in a much better place if those two camps were able to see what Aristotle is trying to show them here in book six. So get your favorite member of Congress to, to listen to the show or, or at least to read Aristotle. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap up the show this week with De Tocqueville's crystal ball. We've already given you a little bit of a preview, a little bit of accountability from, from two weeks ago where we made our final four picks. And uh, the only one that is still alive is, is my choice of Villanova, which has the advantage of being the champion that I chose. So I've, I've got a chance to still be right about that, but we'll see. Of course, the other thing we chose or we picked two weeks ago was, was where Duke would go out. Uh, and I had Duke going out in the second round in an early upset. Uh, Dave, you had them making it to the Sweet 16 about where their seeding would have suggested. Uh, but of course, we're both wrong on that one. And at this point, I believe you said they're the, the favorite for the national championship. Um, so maybe Shashesky goes out a, a champion after all. Well, how neat for you know, Duke and I think North Carolina fans to ha have a final four yeah. with both of those teams in there. I haven't kind of read whether this has ever happened before, but of course that's probably the rivalry in college basketball. So uh, the day that you'll be listening to the show Saturday, they'll be playing. And I think that'll be a, you know, an amazing day for all North Carolina basketball fans. So, and yeah. uh, what a way to go out, as you said. Yeah, I know. I believe it's actually their first meeting in the, in the tournament altogether. Uh, so they've met many, many times over the years, but but not in the NCAA tournament. So to have that in the national semifinal in Krzyzewski's last season is is really something. And I've got to tell you, Matt, I, I can't stand Duke. It's like I know. You know, probably you with the Yankees, like everyone has that team. You know, the yeah. Lakers are that way too. But, yeah, you know, for all of our Duke listeners, if we have any Duke listeners, I'm just not a fan of Duke. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it's hard, you know, not to kind of want them to continue to advance and, and kind of to see what happens there uh, given his career. So. Right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, we got three games to pick, of course, the two national semifinals and then whatever final results from our picks. So we'll, we're going to give you scores as well as um, winners. So first we got Duke versus North Carolina. Uh, Duke's four point favorite over under for that game is 151. So pretty high scoring for a college basketball game. I'm going to say that Duke takes this game uh, that uh, they win by uh, well five to six points. Uh, I mean, let's say 75 to 70, something somewhere in there. Uh, there's a game there, but, you know, at the end of it, it's not a, a, a last second shot. Uh, Duke has the game in, in hand. I agree with you. I think um, I've got them 74-67, Duke over North Carolina. So that would mean they would cover the spread and with a little bit of extra, but be under. I think, you know, more of a defensive game than maybe is anticipated. Uh, you know, some free throws at the end, but, but I agree. I, I don't think it will be ever a, a one possession game quite down to the wire. But a good solid win for Duke, putting them in the national championship game. Uh, then we got Villanova versus Kansas. Kansas there is a four and a half point favorite, much lower on the over under at one thirty three. What do you like in that game? I like the under there as well. <clears throat> I think that uh, Villanova, their last eight games in both the Big East tournament and then in the NCAA tournament, they've just played amazing defense. It was, I mean, one of the games that I watched most carefully is the game they played against Houston 
you know, two defensive powerhouses. And, and I just think that um, they're going to find a way to, to win this game. Gillespie really hasn't had a breakout game in the tournament. He's capable of scoring 25, 30 points in a game. So I think he does that in this game. He may even score um, half of Villanova's uh, points. Um, I'm going to take uh, Villano- Villanova in a nail biter, let's say 60 to 59. Okay. Wow. My uh, pick is very similar to yours. I, I think it will be on the under. Uh, you know, Villanova's lost one of their top players to injury. And so I think, how do you compensate for that? Usually by trying to lock down on defense and, and maybe survive with some good three-point shooting. That's the formula. I think that will work uh, narrowly. I have Villanova 58, Kansas 56. So that means we both have Villanova and Duke in the championship game, game Dave. Um, does that mean, in, in your mind, we're going to get that Cinderella story from Mike Krzyzewski, or does, does Villanova win for the third time in the last six tournaments? I'm going to pick Villanova to win. I, I think it'll be another nail-biter. I think they'll need Gillespie once again here to uh, to really just you know have a tremendous game. I don't believe they're going to be able to hold Duke to 59 points, you know, as, you know, hopefully they'll be able to do to Kansas on Saturday night. So I'm going to say a higher scoring game, a close game and a game one, you know, at the end, I think this will be a last second shot one for all time, but Villanova wins the championship and, and um, perhaps the, that's the dagger in the Duke heart that I enjoy. (laughs) You got a score. I'm going to say, um, let's say 70, 69. So 60, 59 in the, on Saturday, Villanova, and then about 10 points more in the, for each team on Monday. All right. Well, we agree again. So I don't know if that's good or bad based on our past track record in the tournament, but I've got, I've got Villanova 65, Duke 61. It's a little lower scoring game than you have. Again, I think defense is going to be the key for them. Uh, Villanova really has become such a, a tournament team in the last uh, half decade plus. And it's a little, been a little while for Duke. So I, I think, unfortunately, for, for Duke fans, it's not going to be that perfect ending that they all imagined. But certainly it would be a great way to go out overall for Krzyzewski and another championship banner for Villanova. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, don't forget you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. We'll look forward to talking to you real soon. Yeah.